0: Hello, welcome back to another episode of Clapback. I'm Michelle Escobar and I'm joined by Josie. Josephine McDonald. how are you?
1: I'm good, Michelle. Feeling a little bit under the weather, but I've got my tea with me, so all good. You can hear my lovely very- voice.
0: <laughs> Is it very cold in Denmark? I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less.
1: Mm, it's, I mean, it's still cold in comparison to Australia, obviously, um, but... The days are getting, you know, longer, which is really good, and we're getting a lot of sunshine too, so that's very nice.
0: Oh, that's good. I feel like the days are starting to get shorter here. I mean, I get up so early for work, and like this mm. morning, I didn't start as early because I started at eight, but I, I set my alarm for 6 a.m. and was like, maybe I'll go for a walk before, and it was like pitch black.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: because <laughs> I think it's
1: oh true yeah I forget also that there's daylight savings it's also quite a drastic time difference because we're 10 hours but eventually we'll go to nine or something yeah Um, but yeah I think that the days here just in the winter you know at the peak I guess winter solstice it's only five six hours of sunlight but then Hmm. in the summertime it's wonderful because it's light until you know 11 at night and then it's already light again at 4am, you know, coming back from the club and, like, you can hear all the birds, like, (laughs) stinging in the trees. Back from the club. (laughs) Back from the club. I think, actually, that's the reason I got sick is because I went out in, like, a tiny boob tube. And then the next day I went winter bathing with my roomies. And there was no sauna there. Yeah. Where we just go and jump in the freezing cold water. I know. We're all insane. Mm. That's
0: supposed to be good for you, isn't it? Or maybe not. Yeah it's, it's meant
1: really to be, yeah, it's meant to be really good for your immune system, says the person who now thinks that they're sick. But I yeah. I mean, I think that's also just the time of year that you know COVID and the flu has been yeah. going around. Um, but yeah, what what else has been happening in your world? We spoke about tennis last time. Yeah, we did. That was really
0: good speaking to Adam Peacock. Um Not much, it's really the same old with work. I mean, it's beginning of the year still, but it feels like this year's carried on for like a really long time because it's just the same thing every day.
1: (laughs) Yes. And speaking of the beginning of the year, my thing was budgeting. And that actually ties in quite nicely to our topic this week because we're going to be talking about the economy.
0: Yes, it's something that's affecting everyone. I mean, just the prices and the cost of living and unaffordability when it comes to housing affects really everyone in the world, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so many multiple factors going on around the globe at the moment. There's been so much talk of this sort of looming recession that's going to come. But I think, I mean, our guest has more of an Australian perspective on it. It's probably more relevant for an Aussie audience, but yeah, certainly everyone around the world is affected by the current state of the global economy.
0: Yeah, for sure. So we'll be chatting shortly to REA Group Senior Economist, Paul Ryan. And he was super informative and I know I say that about every guest but we've actually had some really good guests he's he's super informative and he explains everything in a very yeah understandable sort of way because when it comes to economy it's not something
1: that we all just
0: guess um so
1: layman's terms yeah he gives it to the average joe and I'm that joe Yeah, so like, um
0: it, like funny enough I did like economic units at uni and I just most of the time I had no idea what's going on but anyway here we are so he um he explains that very well and it's super interesting all all the stuff that he says yep let's take a listen Thank you so much for speaking to us, Paul. Let's get straight into this. We're going to be talking about interest rates, inflation and unaffordability, which are words that we constantly hear at the moment. For those of us, though, who aren't economic experts, would you be able to tell us the driving forces behind this current economic downturn the world is enduring?
2: Yeah, so I think it's worth going back to the start of the pandemic. Um, Obviously, the last few years have been, there's been a huge amount of turmoil in world economies. Um, So, uh, you know, with with economies shutting down throughout the COVID period, there was a lot of economic stimulus. Um, And coming out of that, um, broadly speaking, the, the world economy has done very well. It's recovered from what was basically almost a complete shutdown of the global economy, Um, And has rebounded much faster than anyone was expecting. Uh, On top of that, we've had kind of unexpected shocks to to the world economy, Um, things like continued lockdowns in China, things like the war in Ukraine, um, that have meant that restarting trade across the world to the level that we had before the pandemic has been difficult. So while Global economies are performing really well. We've got low unemployment pretty much all across the world. Um, we aren't able to get kind of goods across the world um, as easily as we could before the pandemic. So broadly speaking, what's that meant is that th- there's lots of demand from economies performing really well uh, and supply is a bit constrained. And that means we've got a lot of inflation. Um, and inflation is bad um, for different reasons that things like high unemployment or recessions are bad. Um, and so policymakers, central banks around the world are responding to inflation to pre- to prevent that being um, the kind of new crisis in the economies rather than high unemployment sparked by the pandemic that we saw a couple of years ago.
1: Okay, and Paul, towards the end of last year, the IMF expected Australia to dodge a recession. However, since then, some economists are warning we could be in one by mid-year. Interest rates continue to rise, and the decision to do so by the Reserve Bank of Australia has been described as one of the most aggressive hike cycles in its history, from 0 to 3.35% in under a year. How do interest rate increases help stabilise the economy, and why does it have to be at the expense of people people's mortgages, for example?
2: So um, again, it's worth thinking about the context here. So while we know that the RBA is increasing interest rates to slow down the economy, it's doing that because the economy is actually performing exceptionally well. Unemployment rate is around three and a half percent, which is the lowest lowest it's been since the 1970s, so uh, that means that almost anyone who is looking for a job can find a job it's 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 easier to find a job than ever before, so that that's part of the reason why the economy is performing so well, so the starting point here is, I, I know you know there's a lot of talk about recession because it's you know a, a, a very big specter on the horizon, but. Mm. What the RBA is trying to do is essentially respond to how strong the economy is. And that's part of the reason why inflation is so very, very fast is because there's a lot of demand for the shortage of goods that are available in the economy. So um, now turning to how the RBA slows the economy, it does that by increasing interest rates. Um, And and as you said, the most tangible way that that the people feel that is through higher mortgage repayments um now that's not the only way that monetary policy works so it also works through the exchange rate so a higher um higher interest rates in the economy mean that the australian dollar appreciates which makes the australian economy slightly less competitive with overseas economies which reduces demand in the economy Uh, it also changes um, when businesses choose to invest so if a business say you think of just a classic manufacturing business um, wants to expand production it'll hire you know um, construction companies and engineers and and this is all the things that kind of generate um, demand in the economy so it works through households very tangibly like everyone feels that and everyone sees their mortgage repayments going up but it also works through all facets of the economy, and it is a very blunt tool. Um, the RBA knows this; it knows that changing interest rates has distributional impacts. So, it has. So, for instance, when the um, interest rate was uh, reduced to basically zero percent throughout the COVID pandemic, they knew that people with um, high asset values, people with expensive houses, were going to see the biggest benefit from that. People without assets were going to see smaller benefits of that. That that's kind of it's difficult with just a single tool to try and address all of the economy's problems. Interest rates are meant as kind of a short to medium run demand management tool in the economy. So the RBA is not trying to uh, fine tune every single part of the economy and fix inequality and things like that, although they they would like to. Um, What they're just trying to do is, is, as um, Governor Lowe keeps saying, is keep the economy on an even keel, as he says. So keep the economy from what the rba assesses at the moment is from running too hot um slow the economy down a bit so we don't have rampant inflation and and inflation is bad because if you think about at the moment you know you have a fixed income week by week um and you go to the shops and every week or every month the cost of goods is is going up that's obviously bad for households and that's the kind of thing that they're trying to trying to avoid
0: yeah, we're definitely feeling the, the pinch at the moment, and it's been said that Australian homeowners are also, you know, feeling the pinch a lot more than in other countries due to variable rate loans or fixed short term loans. Why does Australia uh, differ in that sense?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So uh, Australia is relatively unusual in that it has a lot of fixed, uh, floating rate mortgages or variable rate mortgages, um, and what that means is that. As the Rba changes its cash rate, which is the rate that banks pay money, uh, pay on uh, lot money they have with the Rba. Um, that flows through very quickly into the rates that people pay on their mortgages, and that's very different to places like the UK and the United States. In the United States what's typical is almost everyone has a fixed 30 year mortgage, so you pay the same interest rate as when you took out the mortgage. Um, And what that means is that despite the fact that that the RBA in Australia has seen interest rates increase less than places like the UK and the US, we've actually seen the mortgage rates that people pay on the street increasing more than in those places. So um, to some extent, that may mean that the RBA has to increase interest rates less than in those other countries. Um, But it it means that the RBA actually has um, kind of more fine grained control, at least over how um, household spending responds to interest rate changes. Um, the, The RBA does... Overall, I think that the economy responds to interest rate changes reasonably similarly to those other countries. Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned the um, war with Ukraine before, and I'm based in Copenhagen. And one of the things that's been really concerning here in northern Europe has been energy prices during the winter. And we can see it on our bills for gas and electricity, but also just the cost of living in general for essential food items have significantly increased in supermarkets here in Denmark. What advice do you have for those struggling with their mortgages, rent, and just sort of everyday cost of living down under? How do Aussies get through these times unscathed, or at least as little as possible?
2: It's just a really, really tough period. Um, We're seeing at at the moment, you know, general cost of living for all households is increasing. Um, Mortgage costs are increasing. As you said, the fastest rate that the RBA has ever increased interest rates. Rents are going up incredibly quickly, somewhere in the order of 10% a year on um, advertised rents we're seeing going up Um, so cost of living is being being crunched from kind of every angle, Um, and this is kind of by design. Um, So the the RBA is is trying to slow the economy and one of the ways they slow the economy is is by having people have less money to spend. Um, Now my best advice is to basically um, take stock of that, of your situation early. So figure out, get a good idea of what your um, expenses are and what parts of those are essentials. Um, and then look at what what outgoings can, can be trimmed. Um, and I think for uh, mortgage holders in particular, um, the advice is always to, to get stock of your situation early um your lenders want to help mortgage holders so if you foresee that you're going to be in a position of difficulty reach out to your lender because they have they have lots of tools and and can have lots of accommodations to try and help people in that situation but yeah it's going to be a really tough um a tough year at least for for lots of Australians um it, it's just This is kind of a a difficult period that we have to have I think we've got to get inflation down so that we we aren't feeling that pinch every time we go to the shops. Um, And once inflation comes down, that means that then interest rates can come down again. So um, that's the kind of balance we're trying to look to get back to. um, And hopefully we can all get there without too much of that pain. The Rba is trying. This is a really difficult problem they have is they want. slow the economy and not cause a recession they want to cause as few people to lose their jobs as possible but unfortunately part of that slowing economy means that some people are going to lose their jobs
0: you mentioned uh rent before and in a place like sydney the demand is just crazy at the moment and people are forced into share houses and and that sort of thing can you tell us why that's the case is it down to you know the mortgages people having to sell their homes and being forced to rent or is there something more to that
2: yeah it's um it's quite surprising um rental markets at the moment are just hectic uh i have a huge amount of sympathy for anyone looking for a rental at the moment And, and you can understand anyone who's in a rental doesn't want to have to look for another rental because mm-hmm. they know it's going to be so difficult. So a lot of people are staying put when otherwise they would be, you know, looking for a bigger home or looking for something in a slightly different place. So it's kind of everyone's everyone's kind of feeling a bit, a bit stuck. Yeah. Um, Part of the answer to this is throughout the COVID period um, we saw rents actually fall, particularly in inner city Sydney and Melbourne Um, and obviously during lockdowns, um, hospitality um, being shut down, universities not being face-to-face, a lot of um, people took the opportunity to not live with roommates, not live in share houses um, and got their own space as, as rents fell. Now what that has meant is that we actually need a lot more dwellings to house the same number of people than we did before the pandemic, because people are in these smaller households. So part of the adjustment is is basically is gonna be uneconomic for those people to live by themselves again, and they're gonna move back into the kind of former living arrangements that they were having. Um, we're also seeing a huge amount of extra, extra demand from immigration returning at kind of pre-COVID levels. And now um, there's, there's political talk of immigration going to, to above pre-COVID levels to kind of as, as a bit of catch up for the last couple of years. Um, so that's, that's adding to it. It's not immigration is not the main reason why there's a rental shortage at the moment. Um, it is just generally high demand. And part of that is because throughout the COVID period, people wanted to live in, in smaller households. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, we're both millennials (laughs) and we're constantly told of how in our lifetime, it's almost impossible to be a homeowner in a city like Sydney or Melbourne. And then if we do buy, we won't necessarily dictate where we'll be buying really interest rates in the 90s though they were at a record high of 17.5 but it seems like the dream for our parents to buy a home was very much still realistic then but now it's it's definitely not the case uh, what are the differences between the housing affordability then and now
2: so I spent a lot of time thinking about housing affordability I think it's it's kind of one of the key issues for Australia and for millennials at the moment in in particular Um, and I think the first point to make is that it's actually always been pretty difficult to get onto the housing ladder so if you think about um, a house in Sydney at the moment is somewhere in the order of 1.2 million dollars with a interest rate of about 5%, what you're paying um, for a typical household in Sydney, that eats up about 40% of their income. That's a lot. That's really tough. Um, but if you think about that, that 1990s example where houses were in the order of $140,000, um, and but interest rates were 15 or 17%, that also meant that it was about 40% of a typical household's um, salary at the time. So um, there's this a bit of this balance where people want to get on the housing ladder and will push themselves to get there. Now, there are big differences, though. Um, If you think about at the moment, if you've got a house that's $1.2 million, um, saving a deposit, typically 20%, um, which is, you know, $240,000, $250,000 once you include stamp duty and and costs and things like that, that can take a decade for a household to save. Mm -hmm. Um, and whereas in the 1990s example, um, you deposit something like 25,000 dollars, which takes a lot less time. So we're seeing households getting into the housing market a lot later. Um, and part of that is because of housing affordability. And part of that is also because more people go to university, more people start families later. It's a little hard to disentangle exactly what's driving that. But I think it's it's pretty clear that housing affordability is one of the key things that's pushing people into buying homes later. Um, it it also does entrench um, intergenerational um, inequity too um housing values are so high and it's so hard to get into the housing market and i'm sure you've heard examples of this where you know the people that are able to get into the housing market are people that have parents that you know, live in Sydney or got in the housing market early in Sydney. And it's hard for anyone else to break into Very (laughs) much so. Um, So that's, I think, the um, the real concern going forward is that do we just have these cities that only people who had parents who live in that cities can live in rather than the kind of dynamic you know people can come from overseas people can come from other cities um people can move to where they're best suited to where the, the job that they you know are best suited for can be there that's the kind of dynamism that makes cities great really and makes countries great um rather than this kind of stayed um yet yeah, as you say nepotism um so these are hard problems and and part of the reason why we've switched from a um a low price, high interest rate environment to a a high price, low interest rate environment um, has been, you know, not, has been a global factor. We've seen global interest rates decrease. That means that global house prices have increased. So this isn't uh, unique to Australia, but it does have um, really important implications. Um, A huge amount of of wealth growth is is housing. Um, And I think... There have been some positive signs here to recognize the challenges at the moment, really, for first home buyers is is entry into the market. So it's it's getting over that hurdle of saving a deposit. So things that the government has introduced, such as the first home loan deposit scheme, um, really recognize that that's the hurdle. So this lets... um, first-time buyers get into the market with as little as a 5% deposit. So um, recognizing those challenges for first-time buyers, I think is the first step is that it's not necessarily, so affordability is always a concern for housing, um, but the big concern when prices are high and interest rates are low is, is getting onto the market by reaching that deposit. So um, there have been some positive signs in terms of moving away from grants to first-time buyers, just giving people money and trying to alleviate that that deposit burden for people.
1: You know what it reminds me of? I think was it Barnaby Joyce who said that you know young people can't afford to buy a house because we just like eat smashed avo for brunch. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, that, yeah that, those know. kind of comments, I, I, yeah, I find that that unhelpful. Again, it's like there's these like rose tinted glasses about the past. People were like, oh, you know, if you look in the past, um, your houses were so cheap, it must have been so easy for you. Um, and, it, and, it, and it really wasn't. Um, if you talk to your parents or, or you talk to your gran- grandparents mm-hmm. about how, how hard it was to get in the housing market, I'm sure they'll have similar stories. Although the specific challenges are different. And I think policy needs to recognize how those challenges are changing.
1: Yes, they also didn't have hex debt. Just yes. saying,
2: that's
0: well, that's, that's Walk out for their own <laughs> university exactly. degrees. always something.
1: Um, I wanted to ask uh, RBA Governor Philip Lowe has been under intense scrutiny the last few weeks. Can you explain to us what decisions Mr. Lowe has undertaken that have sort of contributed to these economic struggles?
2: So that's a that's a really good question. So. Um... Governor Lowe's been un, under a lot of scrutiny and and I would I would classify a lot of this, the kind of criticism that he's received has been about the RBA's communication. Um I don't I think some people will say you know, the RBA has done the wrong thing or implemented the wrong policies throughout the COVID period, but um I think those voices are, are relatively quiet and the louder voices are saying actually the RBA just needs to tell people what it's doing more or it needs to explain what it's doing in more detail. Um so I mean the, the the most clear one that's coming through is is this the RBA uh, making this conditional guidance that they didn't expect interest rates would increase until twenty twenty four and then obviously now we're in this situation where it's early twenty twenty three and interest rates have risen by the fastest pace on record um, you know to the extent that people aren't aren't expected to be you know central bank monetary policy experts um, it's very the language the rba used which is very central bank um, technical language um really was interpreted as a, a prediction or or as a as a as guidance of where, where the cash rate was going to go so um, people feel that they were misled potentially um and i think that's that's been right for criticism um now the the rba is under under a, a review and the review is covering a lot of things so it's covering what I think is sensible, the monetary monetary policy arrangements in Australia. So how does the RBA go about its job? What are its targets? So its targets are, you know, full employment, price stability, and, and kind of general um, economic improvement across Australia. Um, but then it's also other things about how does it go about that, and and how has it met those achievements, in the also those goals in the past. Um, and in, in terms of its performance, the main criticisms there actually relate not to the COVID period and what the RBA did through that period, but relate to before the COVID period. So the 2015 to 2019, when inflation was actually below the RBA's target and persistently so. So there are kind of quite strong arguments that the RBA didn't do enough over that period. And that meant that the economy was weaker going into the kind of COVID-19 pandemic than it should have been. Um, But that review will come out in early March. Um, But broadly speaking, um, yeah, I I think, I don't think it's right to interpret the criticism of of Governor Lowe as criticism of what the RBA did throughout the pandemic, which broadly speaking, I think was quite good. Um, You know, if you remember back, there were lines at unemployment offices, people thought that a substantial number of people were going to be out of a job. And the RBA threw pretty much the kitchen sink at trying to stimulate the economy and trying to make sure that Australians got through that pandemic.
0: It's been heavily reported that forecasting has been a bit off for the last decade. I saw a graph in an ABC article that showed what they forecasted and what the reality was, and it was quite off. Um, so such as you know, incorrect wage rises, inflation lagging below the RBA's 2% target, which didn't recover. Meanwhile, the banks appear to be thriving. The Commonwealth Bank has reported a record half-year profit of five point one five billion dollars. Can't even say it, it's that much. <laughs> <laughs> How is that all possible? Is are these things related, or do banks thrive in these sort of you know economic periods?
2: So yeah, so forecasting has come under a lot of criticism of forecasting fundamentally is just it's just really hard um the rba has been overly optimistic on wages growth forecasts and obviously wages growth is really important for you know you and i for how much money we have to you know meet our cost of living um and and that's a key reason why the rba didn't meet its inflation target throughout that to 2015 to 2019 pre-covid period was that wages growth persistently was lower than they expected um now the unemployment rate coming down is a key part of getting wages growth up. And so now that we've seen unemployment to this these kind of record lows, we're starting to see um, wages growth pick up. And, and um that's really positive for the economy. And that's one of the reasons why inflation is strong and that that at the moment the economy is in a really good place. Um in terms of what that means for banks, um, obviously banks thrive in in a a growing economy. Um so there there is this perception that interest rates are going up and that's money coming from mortgage holders and going into banks' pockets or going into shareholders of banks' pockets. And that's not really how it works um, because interest rates going up also increase banks' costs. Banks, broadly speaking, um, make money just off um, how many loans they can write rather than what the the level of interest rates are. So um, the the Commonwealth Bank and, and other banks recording record profits is because... The economy is performing strongly. Uh, people are, are buying homes um, and they basically want the economy to keep performing it at a strong pace um, rather than having a preference for um, interest rates being high. Um, they actually will make lower profits as interest rates increase because credit growth will slow.
1: There's just one final question to round it all off. What do you predict will happen in the next year or so, if you had to look into a crystal ball and say how things are going to pan out.
2: Uh, always, as I said, forecasting is always incredibly yeah, difficult.
1: Just as we asked you,
0: forecasting <laughs> yeah. has been um, so wrong.
2: <laughs> look, my, my hope is that the economy can slow and we don't go into a recession. I don't I don't expect that there will be a recession in Australia. Um, I think the, the economy is in such a good place at the moment that slowing it down, um, hopefully won't put us um, kind of back out the other end and and into a really devastating place. Um, I think we're likely to see housing prices continue to decrease throughout this year, um, which hopefully will bring housing affordability, uh, uh, will increase housing affordability a bit over the next year. Although of course the other side of that is that higher interest rates um, decrease housing affordability. So it's a bit of a balance. Um, But yeah, uh, I, I think we'll hopefully not see unemployment uh, increase too much and we'll see the economy kind of get back to a, a real stable place um, and, and the, we'll see less of this kind of really strong growth and really then, um, you know, having to put the brakes on the economy really quickly. We'll get back to more of this um, business as usual, I'm hoping, um, by the end of this year.
0: Yeah, hopefully so. Food's so expensive at the moment.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the really thing. we the whole goal of price stability is that you shouldn't have to be, you know, updating your budget every time you go to the shops and, and figuring out how much you have to spend. It's um Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. We've learned a lot.
2: <laughs> no, not at all. Thank you so much.
1: Michelle, it is time for the weekly news. I'm wondering what caught your eye this week.
0: What hasn't caught my eye, (laughs) that's the question. Um, So we're gonna start off with something actually quite serious and that is the earthquakes that have hit Turkey and Syria. There was a second one that was magnitude of 6.3, which struck southern Turkey at about 8 p.m. local time Monday near its shared border with northern Syria. And it comes only two weeks after the same region was devastated by a series of earthquakes and aftershocks that killed more than 46,000 people and completely depleted infrastructure. I know that there's... There's quite a lot of people potentially being sued for the for the state of the buildings because they should have been, I suppose, more... Yeah, involved. they weren't up to scratch. Yeah, and 46,000 people and counting dying is just absolutely insane. It's, like, catastrophic. Yeah.
1: And I think this recent one, there's not as many people that have died. I think when I looked at the death toll last time, it was maybe at six. I mean, that could have increased, but there was still mm-hmm. around, like... 280 I want to say seriously injured so it's just it's horrible because it's a double whammy in the same region it's so devastating for the people of Turkey and Syria
0: yeah it's um yeah it's definitely something that you don't want to see and hopefully they do improve those those conditions as well that people are living in because you want to be safe. I know know even if the region is like struck a lot by earthquakes or more prone to it, you want to be as safe as possible. And so I'm sure there's so much more to it, the reasons why um, they weren't in the best conditions, but also New Zealand as well. Um, There was an earthquake uh, a few days after this one. So, and New Zealand's been battered by, I think it was a cyclone all in the matter of like week. And so the world's just, it's responding in, in, in scary ways.
1: It really is mother nature. Um, So this next story, I guess, kind of ties into the environmental disaster factor, but it's also sort of flown under the radar a little bit. I mean, I'm seeing it covered a lot more now by mainstream media, but it was actually a friend of mine who lives in the United States that asked if I'd been hearing about this, and I really had not seen a lot on it. But basically, on the 3rd of February, there was a train derailment in the town of East Palestine, which is located in the state of Ohio. Now, the train was carrying chemicals and it caused this toxic thick plumes of black smoke to go into the air. And after monitoring the air quality, the Environmental Protection Agency, so that's sort of the regulatory body in the United States, said that it had not detected harmful levels of, you know, contaminants. But many residents have remained really, really concerned And just from, like, what I've seen in terms of images, and I mean, I remember as a journalist when we had to go out and cover these kind of, if there was a a sort of chemical spill or like a hazmat incident, you know, the authorities are really quick to kind of make sure that, like, everyone's basically removed from the area. There's just, like, a lot of things that go into it. But I think just with this, and I mean... I would need to read into it a lot more but it's kind of this developing story that's also become really political all of a sudden because the mayor of east palestine basically ripped the president joe biden for heading to the ukraine for a surprise visit instead of going to the scene of this toxic spill. And then Donald Trump all of a sudden has like put his two cents in, which he tends to do, and he's visited the town and then accused federal officials of like indifference and he was donating Trump-branded water bottles and cleaning supplies.
0: Why do you think this has flown under the radar and why do you think like Biden isn't really addressing it? It It just feels weird that Trump has jumped onto it and I feel like obviously Trump always has different motives there's going to be something
1: Um, I don't know if it's just like a political opportunity that he's seizing and I also don't really know what if it's a predominantly republican area Mm. but I mean I think with Joe Biden this visit to the Ukraine um it's kind of on a, a global scale but yeah. in terms of I, mean, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist or anything but it seems like quite a precarious situation when you've got because I also read that there was like a factory explosion or something as well there's just like a lot going on in did hear in this about town. That.
0: That was only a few years ago, wasn't
1: it? That was only recently, yeah. yeah. But this, this thing with these toxic fumes, and I think it's also with, like, the water contamination, there's, like, a lot of things. And it's hard, you know, when the EPA goes in and says it's fine, I mean, you know, you would think you'd draw the line and be like, okay, that's, that's all good. But there was a huge spread in one of the Danish, um, I was at a cafe this past weekend, just like reading the news because that's what I like to do. But there was like a four page spread of like a, I think a Danish journalist who'd gone over to cover it and was like interviewing a lot of locals and residents. And yeah, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder when these kind of, kind of things happen and then what would like maybe the future health concerns be
0: yeah well you would hope that they if there is concerns that you know people can kind of be like aware of it so if they want to they can move out but some things are really hidden aren't they and for political reasons so and once again don't want to sound like a <laughs> conspiracy theorist but Hopefully, uh, yeah, it's always innocent people that get caught up in this sort of things. Um, should we move on to the next story, which is, I'm very yes. intrigued by, which is yes. there's this young woman in Poland who is claiming to be Madeline McCann, and she's gone pretty much viral. She's set up an Instagram and has hundreds of thousands of followers uh, because she's caught everyone's eye saying that she is Madeline McCann. She believes so because... Her parents have never really spoken to her about her childhood and she doesn't really remember her childhood. Uh, there's also links to a, a pedophile that is suspected to have been, uh, you know, I suppose like a suspect in Madeline McCann's uh, case as well. And she also has posted heaps of photos trying to point out all the similarities between Madeline McCann and herself and that this is what she would look like. But at the same time, she doesn't look like her.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I punched it into Google when you mentioned it before. I mean, personally, like it it is a rare eye condition that Madeline McCann Had And I think this Mm. this girl has the same, but that doesn't mean that you are her. And personally, I don't think that they look alike.
0: I mean, obviously, like similar colour hair and similar colour eyes and stuff, but like their features, when you look at them on their own, they don't look alike.
1: Yeah. And I also just think it sounds, unfortunately, like this girl has a lot of unresolved trauma from her childhood if she can't remember a lot and I remember watching the Netflix documentary um that they made um sort of about how the Portuguese police had handled the case and then what the parents were saying and then all of this stuff about yeah. whether the pedophile was involved I can't remember if it was like a German
0: pedophile yeah I think that I think it was they had like a few suspects but I think yeah there was, like, a Portuguese one and then there was a German one. I remember watching that Netflix doco and there was one scene where, like, some guy was going into people's houses around that area of Praia de Luz and I just, that stands out to me because it freaked me out so much because they did the reenactment of him, like, walking in while yeah. we, the mum was, yeah, like, they holding the laundry or something and then the kid and then he was just, like, wandering around their house. Well, <laughs> oh, <gives> it me chills. <laughs>
1: What's the situation because something about the parent Madeline McCann's parents had agreed to a DNA test.
0: Yeah. So that's what it says on her bio that they've agreed to it, but I also read somewhere that like um Julia who is the Polish girl that claims to be her uh, Madeline McCann has said that her parents aren't letting her do it, which sounds a bit sus. And I'm I should mention as well that I th- reached out because it was like an email to see if like we could speak to her mm. and she julia responded by saying to get in touch with her spokesperson who is a dr fear she's a uh, I think persian medium who's got millions of followers and i think on her instagram as well they've been doing instagram lives together and and she believes that uh madeline mccann will be discovered this year like whoever she turned into or well she obviously believes that, that wasn't she, her, so she morphs
1: like, into <laughs>
0: yeah oh I don't know yeah it must be distressing for her parents as well um, like it must be. and then this young girl like this Polish girl as well she's clearly got issues like you said as well and it could be that she might be like someone else's abducted child we just don't
1: yeah yeah. But it's just like when you put those speaking, you know, being all psychic and stuff, but when you put this kind of energy out into the universe, like you never know what you're gonna get back. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, I guess this is gonna be one of those like hashtag watch this space. Let's see how it evolves um speaking of missing people this is one story that caught my eye and this is way more sort of australian local news but there's a fresh inquest that's been ordered into the death of an indigenous teenager whose body was found 35 years ago so 17-year-old Mark Anthony Haynes was found dead on train tracks eight kilometers south of Tamworth on January 26, 1988. He died from a traumatic head injury and suffered substantial blood loss, but no investigation has yet determined how or why he died. And the reason this caught my eye was because I listened to an ABC podcast, um, which is called Blood on the Tracks, which really good investigative journalism i love it it's kind of similar vibes to teacher's pet which i know that i've also plugged um but yeah i think it's his his uncle who pushed for this and you know initially they were like well he was just you know hit by a train and looking at you know basically like an autopsy you can see that he's most likely been murdered by who they don't know
0: that's wild but they have gone through like CCTV footage or maybe there wasn't any available in that area where it happened.
1: Yeah I mean I don't think that there was that much sort of physical evidence but it's also coming down to a lot of mm, let's say discrimination because we know that statistically um, First Nations people are at like a higher rate of you know a lot of deaths but also because the police are not have not treated it um with the same i guess resources as they would with a white person
0: especially i imagine in the 80s in Mm -hmm. tamworth well close to tamworth so it's like the country where they just wouldn't be putting those sort of resources in and like you said the statistics show that you know first nations people haven't really been treated in the best conditions, especially when it comes to murders and things like that, when which is still happening now.
1: Yeah, and, like, domestic violence, all of these kind of things. But I just I thought this was really great that, you know, I think, like, investigative journalism can go a long way um, and also working with the family because obviously they want answers. I mean, it's, like, again, horrendous. It's very, very tragic that they never knew what happened to their son
0: yeah well hopefully they can get some answers and some closure and mm. I mean, like you said with the teacher's pet with those sort of podcasts and and, and then that they lead to something
1: mm-hmm. they sure do yeah. all right final story michelle what do we have uh
0: what is it let me check okay So it is a year since Vladimir Putin launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It was the 24th of February, 2022, when the Russian president announced a special military operation in his televised address. Putin challenged Ukraine's right to statehood. Minutes later, Russian airstrikes and a ground invasion were launched along a northern front from Belarus towards Kyiv. It has instigated Europe's largest refugee crisis since the second world. World War. Isn't that wild that it was a year ago? And when it did happen, I was like, oh, it's just going to end in a few days or in a few weeks, and it's still going.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I actually had kind of like the opposite thought because it was like, I was on a train and I was at my grandma's, and then it was like all in the news. Hmm. And I think being in Europe, they were like, there is a war in Europe for the first time since the Second World War. Hmm. It was like, we're at war and then I don't know it just it felt really surreal in a lot of ways and I think because there's so much media coverage too constantly um and I mean yeah I mean I in some to some degree I was also like oh we'll be interested to see how long this goes for whether Mm. it's going to get shut down but I mean there's obviously Oh, this could be like a whole other podcast topic, yeah. but you know how involved like NATO can be, how involved like the US has been. But I mean, we've definitely like there were a lot of a lot of Ukrainian refugees came to Denmark. I think there were eight million Ukrainian refugees who were displaced. Um
0: a lot went so, to Ireland.
1: Yeah, <laughs> all around Europe. I mean, yeah. I saw like a lot of them on trains in like um like regional Denmark too. Um I mean, that's like also a little side kind of thing, I guess, here, because when you've had the Syrian refugee crisis, a lot of countries weren't as willing to accept them. But with the Ukrainians, at least they were sort of extended more of a, I don't know, you were basically able to people smuggle without it being like illegal.
0: Anyway, that was quite um, grim. <laughs> the all yeah. that we went through.
1: Well, I think the we... news kind of is a lot of the time I know. in all honesty. We
0: need to find some feel good stories though. They're out there. So next time yeah. let's like let's find one or two that we can uh feel good about stuff because yeah things are a bit depressing at the moment.
1: Yep, new year, new problems all yeah, same problems. The same problems yeah
0: <laughs> that's right oh People.
1: Michelle well it was great to chat to you and to Paul
0: yes it was great to have Paul and thanks to Paul for for jumping on with us um yeah we better wrap this up because you need to go to work and my laptop is on seven percent at the moment See the red yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do really need to get ready to go to work Whew, yeah. it's gonna be a lot day. <laughs> all right see you Michelle thank right. you everyone for
0: See ya. thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.